Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. everyone and welcome to another episode of Most Notorious. I'm Eric Rivenis. On to the episode and it is a great one today. I'm greatly honored to have as my guest Tom Westcott, one of the world's preeminent Jack the Ripper experts. He has written 20 essays and two books about the subject, The Bank Holiday Murders and Ripper Confidential, New Research on the Whitechapel Murders. Thank you so much for being here. Eric, it is an honor and a blessing to be here. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. So when and how did you first develop an interest in the Jack the Ripper case? Gosh, that would have been a little over 20 years ago now. So in the 90s, I was in my early 20s. I was actually at a used bookstore looking for some horror fiction to read. I was in the horror aisle, and I noticed uh, the words Jack the Ripper. Someone had picked up a book from the true crime section and set it down out of place in the horror section. So I picked it up and I looked at it and I said, I'm curious. I, you know, I've never read a book on the Ripper. I'd, by that point, I'd read tons of serial killer books, you know, Bundy, Dahmer, the Green River Killer. And I, I knew I liked unsolved cases. So I, I bought the book and took it home. And it turns out, I, as fate would have it, I bought what was considered one of the worst Ripper books ever written. But I didn't know that. It was my first, so I loved it. And then I had to go to the library and get more and more. I got all the library had, and I started buying more. Uh, and at some point in this process of reading and reading, and then, you know, I, it was around the same time I discovered the Internet, uh, the very first website I went to was a Jack the Ripper site called casebook.org, which is still around. And I started reading people discussing it, and I got pulled into this. Um, next thing you know, I'm researching it, developing my own opinions, all of them erroneous, I'm sure, for, for quite a while. 
And then at some point I started going, well, I, I've got a couple things I would like to say. Um, and I started writing for the journals. At that time, there were three or four different journals devoted to the Ripper case. And I would write for them and uh, wrote quite a bit. In fact, people said, why don't you write a book? I said, I don't have anything that I would want to charge money for. But that changed in 2013 when, uh, you know, I had a couple of revelations. And this has, you know, I think this happens after you spend a lot of time learning a subject inside out. Only then really can you start to see the forest for the trees. You have to take in a lot of data. And that's what happened. And something occurred to me there that there were there was this one little street in Whitechapel. And Whitechapel is the is a portion of the east end of London. It is a slum. It's where the murders occurred. But there was a street called George Street, and there were two houses next door to each other. And I realized that in the space of several months, like four or five of the women who lived in one of these two houses were either assaulted or murdered, and all of the cases were unsolved. And this predates the first Jack the Ripper murder by several months. And I said, why isn't this in any Ripper books? Why isn't anyone drawing a link between these attacks and these early murders and then what was to come, which was Jack the Ripper? Uh, And I started researching this, and I realized that in all probability, what we were seeing happen here was, in fact, early uh, assaults by Jack the Ripper that hadn't been properly documented in a Ripper book. And I set about writing the bank holiday murders. And for those who don't know, what a bank holiday is in, in England is basically a day when the banks close. That's why they call it that, like Christmas, you know, Thanksgiving. Here in America, when the banks close, we just call them holidays. There, they have a specific name, bank holidays. And some of the early murders occurred around a bank holiday, which is interesting. And so that's where the title of the book comes from. And then what I do is I'm investigating these early crimes. And uh, then I had a second revelation in the course of this. And that is a key witness in Martha Tabram. Many of the investigators at the time believed her to be the first Jack the Ripper victim. A key witness uh, named Pearlie Paul, who claimed to be the, uh, with the victim on the final night of her life, um, I started looking at her a little closer, and there was a lot of inconsistencies. First, she she went to view the body, at which point she must have instantly recognized her, but instead of saying anything, she left and went home. And she came back the next day and said, oh, I want to identify this victim. This is my good friend, Martha. I was with her on the night. Uh, she died, and she presented a, a phantom suspect of a soldier. Uh, they were with these two soldiers. So that had the police, you know, just calling in every regiment in the area and parading them in front of her so she could pick out the two soldiers they were with. Thing is, these two soldiers never existed. The story she brought them, she had gotten from a newspaper account, that, and it turned out the newspaper account about the victim being with two soldiers was incorrect because it was a totally different woman. It had nothing to do with the victim. So there was some kind of weird, uh, behind the scenes with Pearlie Paul, there was something going on to where she felt necessary to come to the police and tell them a lie. And I thought, why would you do that? She wasn't doing it for money. 
Uh, in fact, she got so stressed out during the course of this, she ran away and talked of committing suicide. Uh, she refused interviews from the press, and they would have paid her good money. This is a, essentially a homeless woman. She was very sick, and she never did a single interview with the newspapers who, who would have paid her good money to do it, an interview. So money wasn't her motive. And I'm like, okay, if money wasn't her motive, then the only other conceivable motive, if not notoriety and money, that I could come up with is she was trying to mislead the police. And if she's doing that, is she covering for someone? In other words, does she know who Jack the Ripper is? And start looking at it, and you find out. Uh, another thing that I found out from my book is uh, Pearly Paul lived with Martha Tabram, the, the Ripper victim, in 19 George Street. She lived in one of the two houses where all these women were attacked. Right after the murder of Martha, she moved to another house. I believe it was 35 Dorset Street. Living in 35 Dorset Street are the next two Jack the Ripper victims, uh, Marianne Nichols and Annie Chapman. This little connection, for some reason, is was not reported in any Ripper book prior to mine. It was, I don't know why. I can't explain that. But I think maybe because no one was really looking at Pearly Paul very closely. But I started thinking, this is interesting. How many people no one murder victim, let alone multiple. It's conceivable that all of them she knew. Um, there were even press reports that later mentioned she would drink at the same bar as the final victim, Mary Kelly. Now, I don't suggest that Pearly Paul was the Ripper. I don't believe that at all. Uh, she was a sick woman. But is it possible she knew more than she ever said or let on? Yeah. And I think that I thought, wow, this might actually give us the the best clue towards the Ripper's identity than we've ever had by being able to find someone who we can connect to these two houses on George Street and to this woman who maybe had a violent history uh, either prior to the Ripper murders or in the years following the Ripper murders. You know, Eric, I don't have to tell you, this is what you do. You talk about old cases. The one advantage we have now when we look at crimes that happened 100, 200 years ago, the one advantage we have is hindsight. We can look back over at, at all the things that happened in the years since that murder that the detectives at the time couldn't have known about. And we can look at people and their histories and decide if they make a viable murder suspect or not. But I'll come up for air. I, you asked a simple question and I've spent 10 minutes answering it. So. No, no, this is great. I love hearing about all of this. I've done one episode prior to this about Jack the Ripper, a maybe maybe a year and a half, two years ago. My guest was Donald Rumbelow, and he kind of gave an overview of the case, but it's been a while. Would, would you mind giving us a brief outline, a summary of the basic facts before we get into the, the nuts and bolts of your research? Uh, sure, yes. Uh, the Jack the Ripper case, also called the Whitechapel Murders, takes us back to the year 1888, in uh, London, England, the Whitechapel district, um, basically it was a square mile in the east end of London where all the murders occurred. And uh, Jack the Ripper, we call him Jack the Ripper because we don't know who he was. This case was never solved. But it occurred at a turning point in Western civilization. 
It was on the heels of the founding of public schools where people were learning to read in mass. Um, newspapers were thriving at a, in a way we can't fathom today. In a major metropolitan area now, there might be three major daily newspapers. Where I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there's one daily newspaper. But back then, there would have been dozens to hundreds just in a single city. Uh, so there was a lot of competition for newsprint, a lot of reporters on the ground. So reporting, uh, newspapers are a massive wealth of information for historical researchers such as us. And you had the telegraph and the telephone were now around. So a lot of information was being consumed in America from England. And at the time in 1888, England, London was still the business center of the world. England was the number one world power. America wouldn't become that until the 20th century. So what you had was a villain like nobody had really seen occurring in the biggest, most populated city in the Western world. You know, and he had Scotland Yard, the legendary Scotland Yard coming at him and they couldn't catch him. So this was very exciting stuff. And the victims were all prostitutes. Most of them were middle-aged prostitutes down on their luck. They were uh, predominantly alcoholics. And they were prostitutes. You've, there's a book that came out in the last year trying to claim they were not. They, they were. It was pretty well documented. There's no question in the minds of serious students of the case that the victims – and that doesn't mean they were full-time prostitutes. But at the time they were murdered, they were soliciting. That's how the killer – was able to connect with them and be taken to a dark, lonely place where they essentially, you know, in that respect, helped facilitate their own murder. He was called Jack the Ripper because a letter was received written in red ink at a news agency claiming to come from the killer and signed, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. It's widely believed this letter was written not by the killer but by a journalist. But the name stuck. It was a fantastic name. It's what today we would call branding. It's the reason all serial killers since uh, the made, you know, have been given a name of some sort or given themselves a name in the case of Zodiac. They were all influenced by Jack the Ripper. And there's a lot of theories as to who the Ripper was. There, there was a lot of theories then at the time. One of the police officials in a memoir said, uh, theories, we were positively drowning in theories. And uh, but they didn't know who it was and they all had a different idea of how many victims there's even to this day, no agreement on how many victims Jack the Ripper had. Some would say as few as two or three. Some would say as many as nine. I think it's probably closer to nine than to three. And I don't think all the victims died. I believe there were surviving victims of Jack the Ripper, who may not have known that's who they survived, but they did. So it's an interesting case. Uh, to learn about Jack the Ripper requires learning about police at the time. To us today, we think of the police, we think of detectives as just something that had always been there, but that's that's not true. The time Jack the Ripper happened in 1888, police forces were a very young thing. Detectives you know, had only been around for a few decades. Uh, people were actually still getting used to the concept of detectives and patrol, patrolling police, policing was done very differently then. It was more about prevention. 
They had constables patrolling on foot everywhere with loud shoes so you could hear them. And the idea being that sound, you know, of them patrolling would keep you safe. Of course, it didn't always work. And if anything, it would allow someone like Jack Ripper to know where they were at at all times. It's believed at the time he put rubber on the soles of his shoes uh, so that people could not hear him walk. This had never been done before. So the police later on adapted this practice by putting rubber on the soles of their shoes. That's where the term sneaker comes from. So you could sneak up on someone. Essentially, that was born out of Jack the Ripper. The tennis shoes, the sneakers we have today were born out of Jack the Ripper. But uh, yeah, he killed for a very brief period of time, you know, not years like we're used to with serial killers, but just for a period of months and possibly starting late 1887 and ending in either 1888 or 89. And then that's it. And then he disappears or so we think. But for all intents and purposes, he stops murdering for one reason or another. And then then there's a big black hole, you know. There's an, uh, just kind of like an image of a, a shadow that we have since tried to put the face of various men in to say this is who Jack the Ripper was. And just for the record, I don't have – there's, there's su- theories and suspects I'm interested in, but I don't think I know who Jack the Ripper was. I'm not convinced even by my own theories to the point where I can say this person was Jack the Ripper. You cut me off at the pass. <laughs> I was going to ask you that at the end of this interview. <laughs> no, did I? No, no, I, I'm just teasing. Well, you know, in this just there's probably some confusion for some of your listeners who pay attention to news reports on the Internet. In the past several years, there have been a lot of them come out saying that Jack the Ripper was identified through DNA. And that is not correct. It, it, the rule of thumb, any major news story coming out about Jack the Ripper is usually going to be at best inaccurate and at worst total bunk. And uh, there was an author in a book who came out who said he had this shawl uh, DNA tested and that through that DNA test, he discovered the Ripper was Aaron Kosminski, this immigrant who was a suspect at the time. And that's actually not correct. The DNA test uh, did not prove anything of the sort. It's a very confusing scientific matter that I don't pretend to fully understand, except to say uh, Sotheby's, the the auction auction house, took a look at the shawl, and, and their conclusion was it didn't even exist in the year 1888, that it wasn't Victorian in origin, but Edwardian. So it wasn't even in existence at the time of the Ripper murders. It was a very, very nice shawl that wouldn't have been owned by any of these women, and it plays no part in the Ripper case whatsoever. So Jack the Ripper will never be identified by DNA. As long as you're talking about DNA, I would like to know your opinion on the Patricia Cornwell book. She claimed that Walter Sickert was Jack the Ripper, based in large part on some DNA she found on an envelope, right? Right. Now, Patricia Cornwell is a very fine fiction writer. She writes the K. Scarpetta series of books, uh, bestsellers, uh, all of them. And, you know, her, her Ripper books are essentially excellent fiction as well. And she is a great writer. If you read them, you will enjoy them. But factually, they're not accurate. Essentially, she went to do a study. Of, uh, she went to do a tour of, in the Black Museum in London And the guy running the tour said, oh, I think a good suspect is the artist William Sickert. 
and she just ran with that, spent a ton of her own money. I don't think she's made any money off of these Ripper books. I really don't. I think she's spent more than she's made. So I give her credit for that. She's she's not cashing in in any way. I think she's lost money on the venture, but she, she became very serious about it. The problem is her suspect, William Sickert, was not a police suspect at the time, is not really ever looked good as a suspect since. And she didn't invent him. Uh, a fellow came out in the 70s saying, I'm the son of William Sickert, and my dad knew who the Ripper was. And then over the years, it became my dad was the Ripper. The problem is this guy, there's no proof he was even an illegitimate son of Walter Sickert, like he said. So it was just, you know, a great fantasy story that he came up with. In fact, there are surviving letters written by Sickert to relatives in 1888 that put him in Paris at the time two of the known Jack the Ripper murders were committed. Now, there are arguments saying, oh, well, those letters might be mistaken or they they could, you know, okay, maybe. But then, you know, you've got to come back and show us that Sickert was, in fact, in London when those murders were committed. The onus is then on you. Uh, and no one's been able to do that. Also, her argument was that Sickert had a fistula, like some kind of deformity on his penis to where he couldn't have sex. And that was the motive for him being the Ripper, uh, the Jack the Ripper. That is complete. That is provably wrong. He had a fistula on his butt, uh, which he got removed. Not only did, uh, you know, his, his plumbing work, but he was known to be quite the womanizer. He had a wonderful sex life, hence the illegitimate child who who first brought this whole idea of Sickert as the Ripper up. But regarding her research into the letters, Cornwell spent a lot of money having some of the surviving Ripper letters tested for DNA. Now, you can't really test the letters. There's nothing there. She had to test envelopes, uh, and most of the envelopes have been destroyed over the years. The stamps were moved by collectors. Uh, not because they were ripper items, but because old stamps are worth money. So there wasn't a lot to test, but she did test them, and she decided that one letter, uh, as far I'm having to think back, so I don't think about this stuff too much, but like one or two letters came from the stationery belonging to the famous artist Whistler of Whistler's mother's fame, and. Sickert apprenticed with Whistler at that time. So what she's arguing is that not Whistler or his wife, but the apprentice Sickert used that stationery to write these letters. And you want to know something? I think that might be true because keep in mind, hundreds of letters were written to the police and the press claiming to come from Jack the Ripper. Most, if not all of them, hoaxes. And uh, someone with like Walter Sickard, who had a great sense of humor, was known to be a, a jokester. I could totally see him doing something like that, to, to see it show up, get mentioned in the paper and have a laugh. Why not? A lot of people apparently did do just that. Those letters she claims he's written, though, have no bearing. I mean, there's nothing about them to suggest they came from the killer. So there's, again, DNA has fallen short of helping us determine who the Ripper is. I think it's unfortunate that guys like Sickert, you know, who are known for one thing, their art, 
are now so well known for being accused of crimes that there's no reason on earth to assume they actually committed. So he's not a good suspect. It's like an early version of performance art, right? Uh, you're not wrong, you know, and it's inter There are a lot of parallels. At the time that um, the Ripper murders were occurring, at the Lyceum Theater, there was uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was being performed. Now, this was a pretty new book. It had been out a year or two. And uh, Richard Mansfield, the actor, was performing it, and apparently very effectively. People were going to see this show, and his transformation from Jekyll and Hyde was very effective and frightening. And in fact, I think the manager of the theater at the time was Bram Stoker, who would later write Dracula, and, and little traces of the Ripper would make its way into Dracula as well. But uh, Richard Mansfield became a suspect, and people were writing to the paper saying, well, you know, young people go to see these these terror shows at the theater or they see these suggestive posters that are being put up advertising them. And it and it, it can make a it can turn their minds violent. And it's so funny because, you know, uh, in the 80s, we saw the same argument about horror movies and uh, and then now about video games, that these are the things that, you know, create killers and the same thing was being said back in 1888 during the Ripper murders. People were looking for someone to blame other than the killer wasn't there to blame. So who else can we blame? But yeah, Richard Mansfield, the actor, was pulled in and looked at as a suspect or people who were seen going to his shows. And could the Ripper be someone like Jekyll and Hyde, totally normal during the day and then turn into this monster at night? You know, this was... uh Something that was uh, in it, and actually that makes sense. You know, that's probably who. That's pretty much who serial killers are. They put on a normal face, and then when they're alone and when they're when the mood hits them, they become something very different. So that's an interesting parallel. But I believe, it, as far as solving the Ripper murders, to do so to the satisfaction of everybody, I think at this point would be almost impossible. The best we can do is eliminate a lot of suspects and, and focus on the ones that are viable, the most viable, and then seeing what more we can learn about each of them. And then in the end, it's just kind of deciding for ourselves which suspect or theory makes the most sense to us. And in that regard, Ripperology has really began in the 21st century or in the late 20th century. Uh, although it, there have been Ripperologist books written about the Ripper since 1888, it's really with the invention of the Internet and with all of these archives being digitized and put online to where someone in Tulsa, Oklahoma can search thousands of archives across the world and compile and collate this data and discuss it in an open forum with researchers all over the world – that's where I think we've made our, our biggest breakthroughs are, are in the last 15, 20 years. And in the next 15, 20 years, we will learn a lot more than we know today. We will be back after a brief word from our sponsors. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. 
To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. I want to ask you more about this area of Whitechapel, these few blocks of especially sordid activity, specifically these DOS houses you write about that, that peppered this neighborhood. Can you explain what these DOS houses were and their importance to the overall story? Essentially, in 1888, there, there were two Londons, okay? There was the London over here who was marveling at new inventions such as motion picture and the telephone and electricity, um, you could, you know, drop a penny into a machine and turn a light on, and this was mind-blowing. And they were enjoying that, and they were enjoying things such as sanitation and and healthy food and clean water. And then you you walk a couple of blocks <laughs> this way, and the world is exactly how it's been for hundreds of years. And this was the slums, you know, and where you know water was unclean, so you drank a beer. Everyone drank beer. Um, I think probably the most common food being consumed was was potatoes. Interestingly enough, food was still plentiful for them. There was really – some people would starve to death. Uh, there was no reason to do so. They actually, food was very cheap and plentiful, not necessarily healthy food, but food nonetheless. In fact, the final – what's called the final ripper victim, Mary Kelly, I believe she had fish and chips on the evening that she died. But they lived, most of the victims lived in what are called DOS houses or lodging houses, where you would rent a bed for the night. And you didn't have, you weren't renting a room. You didn't have a room. There was a big room filled with beds. And if you paid a little bit more, 
they had co-ed lodging houses. 35 Dorset Street was one where there was a floor where there was a larger area with partitions, meaning sheets put up to give you privacy, and a bed on which two people could sleep. So there was co-ed lodging houses. Most of them were not, however. Uh, you slept on your own bed, you know, riddled with lice, and you had a communal stove, which was basically a fire. And you could take your potato, put it on the end of a poker, and hold it into the fire to get it hot, and then eat it uh, right there. And if you didn't have your DOS money that night, that's what it's called, DOS money, you didn't have a bed. And we see it over and over again in the in the Ripper victims, Polly Nichols. She said, I'd earned my DOS seven times this evening, which means she had had a number of clients, made money, but then spent it all on alcohol. She was drunk uh, at the time she was murdered. She was trying to earn her DOS just one more time, and that's when she met Jack the Ripper and was, was killed. Annie Chapman, the next victim, who didn't know at the time but was dying. She would have been dead within a matter of weeks or months from health issues. She she knew she was sick. She didn't know she was dying. But because she was sick, she hadn't been out to earn her DOS money. And the landlord turned her away at the door, and she said, hold my bed. I'll be back. And she disappeared into the night and was murdered by, uh, behind uh, 29 Hanbury Street. So, yeah, there was, there was a fellow named Charles Booth living in London at the time who was just putting together uh, – I think it was Charles Booth who was putting together the Salvation Army. I may have – the wrong name, but the Salvation Army was just at the very beginning stages of coming together as a result. One of the things Jack the Ripper did is he shined a light on how life was in these slums that most people didn't know about. They had no way to know about it. They didn't have televisions to show them video of this, and most of them would never go into those areas to investigate it themselves. But now the papers were full of it. And, uh, and they were asking, how can these murders keep happening and, and the killer not get caught? Well, the reason was, is it was just a rabbit warren of these little streets and alleyways. And whoever the killer was, he knew the streets. And most ripperologists would agree with that. This was not some guy coming in to London from outside of it and committing these murders. This was someone who really knew the area very well, who probably paid attention to the beats of the police. Uh, he was Luck was an element in him getting away with it, but I don't think you can get away with murdering five, six, seven times and never get caught and call it luck. There was obviously other things at play here, a preparedness on his part and a knowledge of the area and of police practices and of the bars. Uh, these women, by and large, were alcoholics. Uh, the murders happened very late. Very few women would still be out looking for uh, a client. I think that was intentional. He knew he was finding someone who was drunk, who he would not have a hard time overpowering. Uh, she'd lead him back to a place. He would, he would, uh, I believe he would rob her. And, uh, that is to pull a knife and say, this is a robbery. Give me your, don't scream. Give me your money and I won't hurt you. And this is how he would get them to comply with him and not scream. And then he would get behind them and put his arm around their neck and do a carotid uh, chokehold, which would render them unconscious. He would lay them to the ground. He would cut their throats once or twice, probably rolling them over on their side to cut their throats so the blood went away from him. Then he'd roll them down their back. They're now dead. And he would earn his name by 
cutting them down their midsection and depending on the victim he he would take organs with him uterus a kidney um in the case of Mary Kelly he took her heart and he would walk away and and then and just disappear so he couldn't have been going too far and he didn't have a horse and carriage he was getting away on foot and so geographically speaking if you look at the murder sites you have an idea of the area in which he either lived or he had a bolt hole, someplace where he could go and disappear into and clean up so that, you know, when he went back on the street, you know, he didn't look suspicious. Earlier, you mentioned Pearly Paul. Her name comes up over and over and over again in your book. It's really interesting, her connection to many of these Jack the Ripper victims. Could you elaborate on that a bit, her relationships to some of these women? Well, you know, it's it's sketchy. It's you know, Pearly Paul, again, wasn't willing to talk much about this stuff, so we don't have a lot. We can infer certain things. Again, these lodging houses were very communal. When you don't have a lot to entertain you, you sit outside and you talk. They would use the same bathhouses to take baths. They would go to the same bars. So, uh, and you have Pearly Paul living either in the same house as or next door to numerous early victims. A young woman named Emily Horsnell, who was beaten to death. Emma Smith, who was the first Whitechapel murder in the police files called the Whitechapel murders. The first murder listed as Emma Smith, who, uh, survived her injuries and long enough to talk to a doctor, but, uh, she was not ripped up. Uh, she was essentially beaten to death. And then following her was Martha Tabram, who we talked about earlier. And this is the one where Pearly Paul claimed to be good friends with her, claimed to be out with her on the night of her murder. And I started looking at the actual facts that we have, and I I don't know that there's any proof. I don't know that they were actually friends. I think they knew each other because they lived in the same house for a brief period of time. But uh, when they spoke to Martha Tabram's common law husband he'd never heard of pearly paul some of martha's other friends from her life prior to moving to that lodging house said they'd never heard of her either i thought this is interesting and it's never been in any ripper book so why is this woman coming forth to say all this stuff and to try and sell the police on this theory of a of a soldier being the killer i was like that's you know there's and there's other parallels there and i thought well Okay, let's say she knows who Jack the Ripper is. What can we learn about her that would lead us to find out who Jack the Ripper might be? And that's what I spend a good part of the book talking about is one of the people who would have certainly held a lot of sway over Pearly Paul would have been the lodging house keeper where she lived. And so I, I researched them quite a bit. Now, I don't mean to say that any of those lodging house keepers, that's the owners of the houses, would have themselves been Jack the Ripper. but at her, at their behest, she may have been lying to the police, uh, as they probably, as they certainly lied to the police, because these lodging housekeepers were involved in any number of illegal matters, you know, gambling, like today, what they would be like the mafia almost. They were like a proto mafia, a group of them together doing a lot of fencing, the stealing and, and selling of items, um, illegal gambling of all different kinds. They were knee deep in all this stuff. And the, some of the police were getting well paid to, you know, turn a blind eye. But murder's a different thing. When bodies start showing up, 
it makes people like them nervous when the women who live in their house are dying. They've got a, they, you would think they'd want to find the killer, but a lot of times what they did is they put up roadblocks and, and I wonder if they don't know if maybe they didn't know who the killer was because he was someone connected to them in some way. And so that's, uh, unfortunately I never, my research to date hasn't led me to the, the one person who must have been Jack the Ripper, but there are some interesting, a lot of research has been done since my book came out that will be in a future updated edition. But, uh, yeah, that theory has still not been taken to its end. These are the men that you refer to as the Lords of Spitalfield. Correct. Yes. Yeah. They were the lodging house keepers. They essentially had more power than the police in that area. As far as the denizens, the people who lived there were concerned. Um, yeah, the police could arrest you, throw you in jail for a night, but these guys could prevent you from earning a living. They could prevent you from having a bed to sleep in. They could prevent you from being able to buy food uh, or liquor um, because they owned all of these establishments where these exchanges took place. So you didn't want to be on the wrong side of them. And in the case of someone like Pearlie Paul, who was very sick and needed their, you know, she really couldn't earn her money too much. You know, so if someone knew that and said, I need a favor of you, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go to the police and I need you to lie. She's going to do it. And she did do it for somebody. But I, the, the big question is who? And that's what we're still working on. What were some of the names of some of these lodge keepers and, and what were their relationships to each other? Well, there, you know, there's a, there's a lot of them, but, uh, in the book, I look, spe I look specifically at a handful of houses. And at first I didn't know that if they, any of them knew each other, I had no idea. You know, that's what I, you know, I, I did the research and found out not only did a lot of them know each other, but they were related either by blood or marriage, found out that they were connected to certain significant police officers. You know, to, to learn this stuff, you got to go back in time further to like the early 1880s. And again, this is where the newspapers, which is our primary source of information for this stuff, uh, they're invaluable. And you're, you're looking, and, and a lot of times these people have different names. There were no social security cards. There were no ID cards back then. You just, whatever name you were going by, that's who you were. But what I started looking at was, okay, what other kinds of business are they related to? And one of the things that kept coming up was boxing. And when I, you, you look at the first couple of Whitechapel murder victims were women who were beaten to death. And you understand that these guys employed boxers. These boxers were what were called bullies. And that meant something different then than it does now. These men would stand outside the lodging houses and prevent men from you know, getting violent with the women or coming in or staying, overstaying their welcome. So they would protect the women in that respect. But, you know, they would also uh, keep the women in line, so to speak. And I can't help but shake the, I, I can't shake the feeling that Jack the Ripper may have been one of these bullies. And I don't, I don't know who, but someone who at early 1888 was employed at either 18 or 19 George Street and who also had connections to 35 Dorset Street and connection to those landlords. The problem is that it's not like there's they kept a record of like, here's who my bully is. and that 
there are no paper. These were criminals. They left no paper trail. The only paper trails that remaining to us are the newspapers. And a lot of names have come up. You get these names and then you try to track them through history. Well, I would, what I would love to find is someone who I could connect to those houses in that time who later went on to serve a sentence for murdering a woman with a knife you know, or something like that to where you could go, this is, um, this is probably Jack the Ripper, but that hasn't happened yet. A lot of the detail, I wrote this book five years ago, so I'm speaking in general terms about it. A lot of the minutia and the intricate details, I can't just pull out of my head right now, but they're in the book. It's a relatively short book. You don't have to know a lot about Jack the Ripper to appreciate the bank holiday murders. Um, if you like historical true crime, it's a great book to read. And then I wrote Ripper Confidential, which unlike bank holiday murders, you really kind of have to be uh, familiar with the basics of Ripperology to appreciate Ripper Confidential. I wrote that more for, uh, I don't want to say serious students of the case, but people who are informed readers of Ripper books uh, really, really enjoy that book. I do want to mention in the first section, I identify a woman I believe might have been a surviving Jack the Ripper victim um, who was attacked on the same night Polly Nichols was. And I use press reports talking about this bloody handprint in Brady Street and neighbors reporting a woman screaming bloody murder. Well, this woman could not have been Polly Nichols, who um, did not scream bloody murder and whose hands were void of any blood. Uh, this was a woman earlier that night, uh, not much earlier, but earlier enough to where it led me to think, did a woman survive Jack the Ripper? He assaulted her. He cut her. She ran away. And, um, and then he went back out on the street and found Polly Nichols. And I thought, well, a bloody handprint, blood on the street, that's a significant amount of blood. And she must have gotten some medical attention, right? Well, across the street from where this happened, I mean, just, you know, 100 yards away is the London Hospital. And their records do survive. In fact, at that time, at that on that night we're talking about, Joseph Merrick, the elephant man, was living in London Hospital. He was there. So I uh, ordered uh, photo images of the admissions records for that night. And I found a woman named Margaret Millis or Margaret Millows who was admitted to the hospital with her on one of her arms, her, uh, I believe it was femoral artery. Her artery was cut. This is significant injury. You've got to cut. This is the biggest artery in your arm and it was cut open. Now imagine you're fending off an attacker with a knife. You put your arm up. You lower your arm, that blood comes down over your hand. You grab a wall, you push up, you run screaming murder. Uh, as the, again, the paper reported these things happen. She runs in the direction of London Hospital. Margaret Millis is admitted and her admission is recorded for the next morning. She stays in there a long time. Uh, it's a significant injury. She it took a long time to heal. Skip forward in time, there's these reports, these suggestions in the newspaper of an unnamed surviving victim of Jack the Ripper. And anyways, I compile all of this into a, a write-up in the book Ripper Confidential regarding events surrounding the murder of Polly Nichols. And uh, I think it's a, you know, I'm not 100% convinced any of this happened, but it looks to me like, you know, it's possible that after all these years, I've actually identified a surviving victim of Jack the Ripper. And all that 
succeeds in doing is giving us a little more insight into Jack the Ripper and how he operated to have a woman run away from you screaming murder and then have the guts to go back out and lure another victim to a very nearby area. It tells us that, you know, he there was a certain desperation in what he was doing. And we see him later on risk his neck in significant ways and still get away with it. But he was willing, he took precautions, but he was willing to uh, risk his life and limb to, to kill these women. And to what end? Who knows? But for whatever reason, even after they were dead, he was on a sidewalk in some of these cases, a public sidewalk, a public square, not just murdering women, but then opening them up and taking portions of them away with him taking a piece of chalk and writing a message on a wall, which may have been influenced by Sherlock Holmes, the first story, A Study in Scarlet, that came out the year before the Ripper murders had someone writing a mysterious message on the wall in chalk. One year later, uh, Jack the Ripper does just that. So it might have been life imitating art. Interesting. Yeah, that, that's exciting, this new possible Jack the Ripper victim that, that you've discovered. I want to go back for a moment to these lodging house bouncers, these bullies you were talking about. You point out in your book that these guys really had to operate these jobs without a conscience. I mean, they were tossing out pregnant women, women with little kids, sick women, destitute women out into the cold, dark night. The idea that one of these hardened men, devoid of empathy, might have had something to do with these murders makes some sense. It wouldn't be out of the ordinary to believe that. No, I mean, who, whoever Jack the Ripper was, he was local. He did he he earned his living in some manner in that area at that time. And I believe he had expendable income that allowed him to go to bars and, and drink. And But I don't believe he picked up the women in the bar to where a lot of people could see him. He went walking the streets. He waited until it was late at night and a lot of people had gone home. And then he would find a particular type of woman. And and you got to remember, too, these women, after the first couple of murders, they were aware somebody was out there murdering uh, women like them. And the papers had descriptions, you know, of a hunched back guy called Leather Apron. Whoever Jack the Ripper was, he looked nothing like what the person they were reading about. So they felt safe enough with him to go alone with him uh, where they were summarily murdered. And that's the thing. Um, the women in 18 and 19 George Street would have, if this guy was a, a quote-unquote bully working at those houses, they knew him personally. These other women may not have. He may have been a total stranger to them. So to say Jack the Ripper knew all the victims, I don't believe he did. I think he knew one or more of them. Sure, I do. Um, but I don't think he knew all of them. But whoever he was, the women, even at the height of the Ripper Scare, felt safe enough to go with him and didn't live to regret it. But uh, so that tells us, you know, I think uh, and also the way they were murdered tells me he was taller than them. He was a tall man. He was because he had to to do a carotid chokehold. You have to put your arm around them, their neck. You had to overpower them. And even drunk, these women were no uh, weeping willows. You know, uh, they they were street smart. They knew how to 
uh, defend themselves. And yet he was able to murder them outside of where people were sleeping. I mean, right underneath windows. And they, the people inside the house has heard nothing. Uh, Annie Chapman was murdered in the backyard of a lodging house where I, I think 17 people were, were sleeping and none of them heard a single thing. So, uh, you know, he was able to do this not once, but repeatedly and get away with it. Um, so I think we're looking at someone who was a, by that point, you know, versed in the criminal lifestyle. I mean, just the ability to give, uh, carotid chokehold, which in 1888 was called a uh, garroting. They called it garroting. Like you today, we would use a garrot, uh, but this was called garroting. That was the slang term for it. And a certain kind of criminal knew how to do that well. And it was a, you know, you would, you would see a banker, someone with a nice suit or a watch chain, and you would go garrot them, drag them back into an alley, knock them out, and then take their stuff and go away. I think that was something like this guy was involved in. Someone like that might also be a boxer, might also be a bully, or may just be a criminal. Whoever it was, though, was tall and strong and could overpower these women and with confidence without them making a sound. But I think sometimes he screwed up, like with Margaret Millis, who ran away screaming bloody murder. I, you know, I don't think every time he was successful. One final break as we hear from our sponsors. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most 
shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Thanks for hanging in there. Back to the show. And one of the myths that you kind of put the kibosh on is that the man who did this had to have had some surgical, some medical background. Well, and I I don't necessarily want to put the kibosh on that because there is medical knowledge apparent in the murders. There is anatomical knowledge, I should say, which is not the same thing as saying there is medical experience. Someone who worked as a, a butcher of animals which was very common at the time in that area, would know the general anatomy of a body. And it wouldn't be too different in a human. If you were uh, butchering horses or cows or pigs, uh, you learn where the organs are. You learn what the organs are. Was it a doctor who was committing the murders? I, I don't have a reason, any reason to suspect it was. Was it somebody who was intelligent um, and who had anatomical knowledge, absolutely. How they came about that knowledge, whether through books or medical school or being a butcher, I have no idea. But uh, there's no question that in, in pitch darkness, the Ripper was able to cut a woman up and, and find her kidney, which is well deep. And, you know, you've got to get through layers of subcutaneous tissue and fat to get that kidney. He was also able to cut their uterus out. And we're talking, again, in darkness. And then he would do this very quickly. Catherine Eddowes in, in Mitre Square, she was seen alive, standing with a man, and she was found dead 10 minutes later. In that time, the Ripper lured her back there, rendered her unconscious, laid her down, cut her throat twice, cut the tip of her nose off, cut upside-down Vs into her face, some of which may have been intentional, some not. He... He nicked both of her eyelids with the tip of his knife. That would have been intentional. He then cut a big portion of her apron off, which he took with him. He threw her dresses up and cut her wide open and took her uterus with him and took her kidney and uh, and then walked away. And all that in less than 10 minutes. And he couldn't have done these things just by accident. I, so there had to be some anatomical knowledge there. But the idea that he was operating with some supreme surgical skill, that he was a specialist. Right. No, that's, is... a, that's a Hollywood thing. Yeah, that's a Hollywood. Any Jack the Ripper movie you see in 2001's From Hell with Johnny Depp or the 1988 TV movie with Michael Caine, uh, they're all fiction. And that's which is they're movies. They're supposed to be. None of that is true. Jack the Ripper was not a doctor riding around in a carriage like the movies portray. I don't think he was a doctor at all. I think he's, um, if you look at the early murders and then you work your way up, he's upgrading his hardware. His knives get sharper and longer. He didn't start out with these things. So he's not so different, uh, really, from modern serial killers. And it's not too odd that he would have anatomical knowledge. Again, at that time, for a young man 
apprenticeship to butchers and, and places like that were, a, you know, a very, very common trade. And in fact, at the time, slaughtermen were looked at as serious suspects and for good reason. Honestly, I think for a good reason. But that doesn't mean that's what the Ripper was at the time of the murders. But at some point in his life, somehow he learned and gained anatomical knowledge. And murdering the women was not important to him. He uh, rendered them unconscious. He didn't want, he, he wasn't about inflicting pain. He wasn't a sadist. He rendered them unconscious before killing them. And then he set about, and this is when he really put himself at risk by remaining there with a dead body, bloody hands, cutting them open, doing these things with him. So that was for some reason. And if you were a surgeon, if you were a doctor, you you would have an outlet for your job was to cut up people. Your job was to cut up cadavers. You could do that without risk of, of hanging. This person couldn't. This person in order to get what he wanted, which was to cut into a woman's body, he had to murder them first. So whoever Jack the Ripper was, he could not have been a working physician because otherwise there would be no need for him to go about it this way. So you're saying the thrill for him was not necessarily the kill itself, but more the the cutting and the removal of the organs. Well, I think uh, the murder, I think that he enjoyed the fear. I think that's, and, and if you read the book Ripper Confidential, I explain why I believe he, he robbed the victims. Uh, a number of them were found with items in their hand or next to their hand, items such as a thimble or an, a portion of an envelope or um, a packet of breath mints. Why would they have them in their hand? Well, the reason is I'm telling you empty your pockets. These women didn't have dollar bills or pounds they had change and they would reach into their deep pockets to pull out their change and out would come a thimble or um, breath mints in their hand and while their hand also get them to put their hands in their pocket and that's when he would put his arm around them to strangle them so he gets them to put their hands in their pocket grabs them strangles them they lower to the ground their hands come out of their pocket with an item in them so, and this is all, and again, this is something that was not considered by ripperologists for the past 125 years. But when you look at the crime scene evidence, it starts to make sense. This is how the ripper approached them. Do I think he got joy out of seeing fear in their eyes? Sure he did. While, you know, that's one of the reasons why you have the ruse of I'm going to rob you. You get that initial fear, but then he puts them at ease, gets them to put their hands in their pocket and is able to do what he needs to do. But the means to the end for him was, for some reason, cutting them open and seeing their insides and taking a part of them with him. If you look at Mary Kelly, the one victim killed indoors in her own room, uh, which incidentally is the first crime scene photo ever taken at the crime scene with the body in situ. It's the first one ever taken was Ripper victim Mary Kelly in November of 1888. For the technology they had then, and considering they didn't really have any light in the room to work with, it's a surprisingly vivid and very, very disturbing photo. Uh, There's actually more than one photo, but I'm referring to the full body photo of her on the bed. Her face is gone. He's removed her face, but he didn't damage her eyes. He removed her eyelids, didn't damage her eyeballs, which is interesting. And he took her heart with him. He removed a lot of the flesh off her legs. He emptied out her midsection, her abdomen, takes her left arm and puts her hand inside the empty cavity of her abdomen 
uh, spreads her legs apart grossly and then turns her head to face towards the uh, door. So where if someone comes in, she's going to be staring at them. And he spent a lot of time doing that. So that was very important to him. And he was, at, you know, people say, well, he was indoors. He wasn't at a risk. That's not true. He was indoors, which meant he really had one way of escape, and that's the doorway where if someone's coming into her room, um, they're going to catch him. He would have been naked, I believe. Uh, he would have stripped naked to get in bed with her. She was a prostitute. She got in bed willingly. She was wearing only a camise. She gets in bed, and he reaches around and cuts her neck open or cuts her throat open. Uh, he did not render her unconscious. Her arterial spray is all over the wall. And then he uh, rolls her over and spends the next hour or two butchering her, puts his clothes back on and just walks out and is gone. And then that's possibly the last known Jack the Ripper murder. So Leather Apron, <laughs> <laughs> who you mentioned in passing here, do you believe there is a, a connection between a man nicknamed Leather Apron and these crimes, these events? No. Uh, Leather Apron was the name given to a mysterious figure described by some lodging house women at 18 Thrall Street right after the murder of Polly Nichols. These were women who lived with Polly Nichols at 18 Thrall Street. And naturally, because they were associates of hers, they were asked, who, who could have done this? And they described a man they called Leather Apron. That was their nickname for him. He was um, a, a cobbler, you know, or a, a shoemaker who was crazy, who would wander the streets. They said he was Jewish, and he would wander the streets and, uh, like, hit on women or assault women or do these things. They, they're like, you know, keep an eye out for Leather Apron. Stay away from him. And so that became this figure the police were interested in, in looking for. And they ended up deciding it was a fellow by the name of John Pizer, um, but who in reality apparently was not Leather Apron. There, I don't know that there ever was a Leather Apron. I think there probably was. Does he have any connection to the murders? No. It was just, um, so, you know, the police were looking for somebody. And But this description got into the papers. The papers ran with it. Oh, Leather Apron. That was the original name for the Whitechapel murderer was Leather Apron possibly an inspiration for the leather face many years later. So leather apron, we're looking for leather apron. So the later victims of Jack the Ripper would read the newspaper and hear about, oh, watch out for this hunchbacked Jew with wearing an apron, snarling, uh, walking the streets. And so that's who they were looking out for. And that might have helped. That certainly aided Jack the Ripper because he would have looked nothing like this guy. And so he could approach women and they they wouldn't they wouldn't be afraid of him, but no leather apron was had nothing to do with the Ripper murders. Has there ever been a film or television version of these crimes that has come even remotely close to the actual events? Oh no, not at all. You know, but then again, movies are they're fiction; they're supposed to be, and that's okay. You want to make it interesting, and so there isn't. There are several documentaries that are out. If if anyone has the Reels channel, R E E L Z, the Reels channel. There's a TV show called Murder Made Me Famous, and I did an episode for them a couple of years ago on Jack the Ripper that they air every now and then. It, they might have it on demand for you to watch. That was very good. Of course, I, you know, I'm biased. I'm, I'm in it, and it's my work largely influenced it. But there is no documentary you can watch 
that is fully accurate or especially if it's suspect oriented. There's a documentary that came out a couple of years ago called Missing Evidence claiming that Charles Cross, a.k.a. Charles Lechmere, the man who discovered the body of Polly Nichols, that he was Jack the Ripper. And if you watch that documentary, you'll be like, man, that's convincing. But the information in it isn't accurate, unfortunately. And in reality, Charles Lechmere lived a blameless, a long and blameless life, raising his family. He was successful. No history of criminal activity before or after. And he was just a man who was unfortunate enough to find a dead body on his way to work one morning and doesn't really deserve to be branded a serial killer. But these documentaries are entertaining, and so I understand that if people new to the case, that's an obvious starting point, is go enjoy watching the documentaries. And I would encourage, a lot of them are enjoyable. Just don't take it as being, you know, and that's true with all cases. Any documentary, it's entertaining. Watch it. It'll maybe learn some basic facts. But then you got to turn to reputable books on whatever subject matter. Podcasts are great, you know, especially like if you have a niche market like historical true crime like you're doing, which is fantastic, you know, because so many people are obsessed with Ted Bundy and all of this. But I'm like, man, go back in time. There's some great stuff happening. And you listen to a podcast, listen to an author talk, go read their books and find out if it's something you want to invest your time in because it's a black hole. Something like Jack the Ripper, if you if you go, man, I love these Ripper books. I want to read more of them. Man, there's a lot. More Ripper books have come out in the last two years than in the first 50 years following the Ripper murders. Most of them junk, too. <laughs> a lot, lot of bad stuff out there, but there's also some good stuff. Has there ever been a suspect that at any point in your research... I mean, I remember Donald Rumbelow saying he'd come close to believing that someone had been proven to be the killer and then changing his mind after additional evidence. Has that ever happened to you? Oh, all the time. Absolutely. 100%. Going back to, you know, 20 years, there have been suspects I was interested in. And then and now I'm convinced they're not Jack the Ripper. And then there's people like the, the theory outlined in Bank Holiday Murders, which is not a suspect, but it's a theory I think there's a lot of merit to that. And then there's also another fellow I've been interested in for years that will be the subject of my third Ripper book, who I think is a, a possible suspect for at least one of the Ripper murders, if not all of them. And so that, that will be a, that book, that, that'll be a, an interesting book. I think people will get a lot of, get a big kick out of that one. It's going to be very unique. Does he have anything to do with the Lords of Spitalfield? Uh, not that I know of. No, it's 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 separate. It's it's gotcha. Uh, oh boy, if he did, I'd be freaking out. But see, that's the thing is, I'm able to uh, separate. I'm able to research that area and then research a completely different area, and and I'm able to do that because I haven't committed myself to a theory or a suspect. Once you do that, you're kind of useless as a researcher, and it's true, you are. And so, but this next book, and I have to be careful when I, when I talk about that guy or I write about him, I can start to convince myself he's the Ripper and I have to pull back from that because I don't know that. I don't know that, you know, it, give me any suspect and I can show you there's reasons to think, oh, this person could be the Ripper and there's reasons to think they are not the Ripper. But one thing we know for a fact, somebody was Jack the Ripper. This person was there. He did these things. He existed and he had a name. 
And I think that name is most likely known to us in one manner or another, whether it was just a blip on the radar in one newspaper article or in a police report, or if it's someone who's had books written about him already. Jack the Ripper existed. He's real. We just don't collectively know who he was. And I I can't imagine we ever will in our lifetime. Someday, if someone invents time travel, they're going to figure it out uh, in a heartbeat. But until that <laughs> happens, we don't know who Jack the Ripper is, and I don't think we're going to know. Well, that is the danger. That is the lure, I suppose, when, when you find a suspect that you latch on to, maybe like Patricia Cornwell did with Walter Sickert, and then you begin building a case around him, right? That's right. That's what so many people do. They, they're not researching the case. They're trying to prove themselves right for some reason. It's a, it's a need people have. The Ripper case is like an Agatha Christie book with the final chapter torn out. How frustrating is that? You want that final chapter. It's not there. So you, by God, I'm going to write it. And I'm no better. I've been trying to do that. I'm just stubborn enough to, to sit back and go, wait a minute. You don't have the proof that this is the theory or that this is the suspect. But I do know for a fact that my research has advanced our understanding of the case, and that's that's a big deal. I don't think, uh, you know, and I've worked hard at that, and I'm continuing to with this next book. People are, you know, for instance, I'm going to show them who wrote the infamous From Hell letter and and potentially why it was written. What I won't be able to tell them is, was this person Jack the Ripper or not? We just, we just won't know. Now, if we could ever find that kidney that uh, George Lusk received a little – small letter in the mail with a, a box and inside the box was half a human kidney. And the question is, was that kidney, did that come from Catherine Eddowes as the letter claimed the Ripper victim? If it did, then Jack the Ripper sent that letter and sent that kidney. If it didn't, then it was a hoax. And of course, you know, not everyone can just get their hands on a human kidney. Someone did, you know, and either as a, through a, as a hoax or it was Jack the Ripper I believe I know who sent that package. And I, what I don't know is, was it a hoax or was that person Jack the Ripper? But that's all going to be in a book I haven't even written yet. So, Well, we'll leave it on that titillating little morsel there. <laughs> um, so again, you've got two books. We've mostly talked today about The Bank Holiday Murders, which was your first. And then you've also gone in just a bit into your second, Ripper Confidential. Where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Well, um, to buy the books, go to Amazon, uh, and you can just type in Jack the Ripper, and all should come up on the first page, uh, Bank Holiday Murders, Ripper Confidential, or type in uh, Tom Westcott, W-E-S-C-O-T-T. Uh, the best place to find me on the web is I am the admin of uh, the largest Jack the Ripper Facebook page. Just go type in Jack the Ripper, and it'll come up all caps, admin Tom Westcott, and just join us there. Well, very cool. Uh, well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, Eric, thank you for reaching out to me and inviting me on your awesome program. Yes, of course. It's been great. Thank you again. Again, I've been talking to Tom Westcott, author of The Bank Holiday Murders and Ripper Confidential, new research on the Whitechapel murders. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. 
you'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.